Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Dave Finocchio. Dave is the co-founder and former CEO of Bleacher Report, a global digital media company delivering content at the intersection of sports and culture. He started the company with three of his childhood friends in 2005, and it went on to be acquired by TBS in 2012. Several years later, Dave stepped down from his role and most recently launched The Cooldown, which is a media platform that aims to be America's first mainstream climate brand. Please enjoy our conversation with Dave Finocchio. This is how we like to start most of our podcasts in a hotel room. Uh, we're in a what? This is let's measure it. Sixty-five square foot hotel room. Yep. Have you ever done a podcast in a hotel room, Dave? I do all my podcasts in hotel rooms. I don't. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, we might yeah, have to change the name of our podcast to Founders and Hotels. That's a good one. It's like the driving in cars with comedians. That's uh, right. Show. Yeah, this is uh, this is about the same size as my freshman year college dorm room. <laughs> It's like same good memories good yeah. memories well Not thank really, you for having us in our uh, in your hotel room i should say um we're excited to talk about your uh journey as a founder and even before that so we'd like to kick it off from the get-go with where you were born i was born in uh, mountain view california before that was a famous place mm-hmm. for the hospital tech. At a hospital. At a hospital. It yeah. happens to be in Mountain View, California. Got it. Yeah. What was what was going on in Mountain View at the time? Uh, I think not a not a whole lot. I think uh, probably had the the garbage dump that later became Shoreline Amphitheater. I don't know. There's a there's a music venue there. Um, that's what Mountain View was known for when I was a kid. And then uh, eventually Google rolled in and like kind of took over Mountain View and that's Cheap what land. that's what people people know it for these days. But yeah, yeah. concert venue dump google mm-hmm. what what else like what else was in the city like what, i mean mountain view i've been there once but i can't remember like is there a lot to do outside of you know so i grew up i grew up a little i was born in mountain view but i grew up in a town like another suburb of san jose california yeah. uh it's a good good place to grow up yeah, that's a of, good that's a good place we know what that is yeah 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 uh yeah, I was like, you know, growing up in California is uh, is mostly pretty awesome. I was close enough to, uh, to sort of the the tech stuff that was going on at the time that 
you know, probably had a little bit more of an entrepreneurial, you know, anything's possible mindset than maybe kids that grow up in other parts of the country. Yeah. So what, yeah. what did your, uh, how did your parents end up there? Like what did they do for a living? Oh, uh, yeah. My dad worked in tech, um, like, uh, networking mm. technologies, he like worked actual for a, tech. Yeah. Like real, <laughs> like back when they built the stuff that makes it really easy for, for all of us now, he worked at a company called three com mostly. Okay. Uh, they were, um, they did one of the first uh, sports stadium deals. Mm. So when uh, like Candlestick Park, which is where the 49ers and San Francisco Giants used to play, I think I think the first ever stadium deal in the United States or one of the first was it became 3Com Park. Mm. So yeah, sports connection there. Oh, um, you're talking about like a title, like a right type of situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When before, naming rights. Like before, yeah. Naming rights before stadiums. Um, the, you know, they, they, used uh, be, they used to be called like, Right, Wrigley yeah. Field, or oh, not well, Wrigley, Wrigley was yeah, that's right. That was a guy, yeah. yeah, yeah, who started a gum company. I had to. Yeah. That yeah. was that was my example of all the examples. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 But yeah. There, there are others. There are others though. Yeah. Um, you know, like Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, because right. you know there were three rivers there, not because Three Rivers paid them, you know, twenty right. million bucks a year. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, so my dad was in tech. Um, gosh, my and they ended up there because of because of his job. Uh, um, yeah, my. My mom, um, uh, my mom didn't go to college. Like moved to Europe when she was eighteen. Was a nurse in Europe for a long time. Then moved to South Africa for a long time. So I sort of had like one parent that um, that sort of really valued travel and spoke different languages and had these different life experiences. And, and then my you know my dad sort of had this business side. So it was a good like I, I really value mm-hmm. sort of the like boy, I, I kind of got both sides of that. Did you play sports growing up? Yeah, I played every like every sport. Um, yeah. I played three sports in high school. Before, like I, I played everything. I was, I became obsessed with football, sports. basketball, soccer. I mean, uh, I never played tackle football, but yeah. you know, uh, played a lot of a lot of flag football. But um, yeah, played basketball, played soccer, played baseball, played uh, as a runner, played golf, tennis, right? Lots of other, lots of other stuff too. I just were loved you, it. were you into the stories? Like I have a, I have a kid cousin now he's about six and he knows like this, he, he, he loves sports. He's not, you know, he doesn't play as many, but he loves following the stats, the stories. I mean, were you that kid or were you just more focused on playing the game? I was totally that kid. Um, my d- my dad was a sports fan, but not a huge sports fan. But he had a he was in a running group on weekends, and one of his good buddies was really into sports. And his his buddy Woody um, basically taught me to read by reading. Like he first taught me to read baseball box scores, and then sort of, that was sort of my impetus as like a four year old to like I want to be able to read because I want to know what's going on. So I would get up with my dad at like six a.m. every morning to go get the San Jose Mercury News outside and read the sports section cover to cover. I probably did that every single morning from the time I was, you know, four or five years old until I went to college. Like, so I, I was like, you know, central casting that kid. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what sport, I guess, was like your main sport that you would say that you were the best at? That I was the best at? Yeah. Uh, I was never, I was like, I was, I was good at a lot of sports. I was yeah. never great at anything. I was like, I think I made all league in high school at three different sports, but never like, you know, I was, uh, I didn't play in college and, and anything. So, yeah. um, yeah, I was a pretty good soccer player, pretty good at golf. I was a pretty good runner. I feel like every guy who's into sports has that age where they realize, oh shit, I'm not going to make it to the pros. <laughs> and you think you are like at some point and then you get to one where you're just like, oh, everyone's just like 
way better than I am. When was that age for you when you just kind of realized like this isn't going to be like my career when I grow oh, up? Oh man, uh, <laughs> I never. I was. I think I was a little bit more on the side of. Um, I was almost a little bit more of a, a late bloomer in sports where I never. I never thought I was going to play pro sports. It was more like yeah. I'm going to work really hard so that I can, you know, be on the high school teams, and then yeah. once and then like you know, did did well enough in those. Uh, when I was in college, I played a ton of uh, of hoops and like try like, you know, turn myself into a pretty decent basketball player. So I I more so like I just loved playing everything. Where. Uh, like I was, I was more the kid who like I could never focus on one sport. And maybe if I'd like played one sport, I could have been pretty good at it. But I just like I wanted, I wanted to do everything. Did, did the sports ever take away from your studies, or were you academically like a pretty good student as well? Uh, I was, I was a really good student in the subjects that I was interested in, and then I would do like the bare minimum to get by in other subjects, and I would all like. Like I would get, I would get A's and B's, um, and I'd get A's in the subjects that I cared about, and then other, you know, I'd get B pluses in the in the other ones. But I never, like, I always cared more about sports than I did about my schoolwork, and I would have always right. prioritized that. Right. A very, I feel like most boys, not, no, I don't want to say all boys, but most boys growing up, like, that's kind of it. Like, you have, I mean, it's either well nowadays maybe it's a little different. It's just like video games and maybe sports but back then like pat and i still grew up in a time where we didn't have a like a smartphone and like the laptop was like kind of around but it was like 10 pounds and so you you were outside playing sports like that was a part of your like life it was school sports eating sleep like that's kind of it yeah totally and you decided with like some video games mixed in yeah mixed in but they're it's so different now for kids where they have so many more options of what to do with their time and that's why sport like sports are a lot less popular now playing sports and mm-hmm. watching sports for younger generations than they were when we were growing up yeah um, for i think primarily for that reason because there's just so many other things to get into do you think that i mean and we're jumping around here but like, do you think that like that's going to cause any problems like long term like and i talk about that from you know mentally physically as you know being in a team type setting adversity things of that nature like those are all the things that sports really kind of teach you beyond just having fun getting a nice sweat and a workout in but like how do you think that that plays out long term i i mean for me personally and for a lot of the people that i've most enjoyed working with and the people that have been like most successful in the companies i've worked with have have had real sports backgrounds and you 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 touched on it um you you learn a work ethic you learn how to overcome adversity. I think one of the things that people don't when like when they have this conversation they don't always get to is I think you learn how to play a different like different roles on a team. Like I was on teams where I was the best player, I was on teams where I was the second best player, I was on teams where I was, you know, just like another guy, I was on teams where I was a bench warmer. Right. And whatever like you sports puts you in positions where you like you have to be a team player and learn your role. And I think for I think in life that's really important. Like sometimes you just need to know how to fit in and do your part versus some, uh, some people who, who haven't been on teams, like they always sort of insist on, I need to be the star or I see myself as this type of person. And maybe sometimes you are, but maybe sometimes that's not what's needed. Like in a company environment, like you're not the star, we need you to do this. Mm. So yeah, I don't, I I think for most people, that's a great learning. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
So I'm very pro kids yeah. having some exposure to Because, yeah, you talk about, like, the sort of, the, not the contrast, but, like, learning in school and then being more interested in sports, but the amount of lessons you probably learned that you picked up, like, just life, you know, lessons, people, you know, lessons in terms of dealing with people and, and being in work environments probably has gone a longer way than, like, what you were learning in class, uh, right? And so, like, totally. And, and, and like, to, to, the, to your point, you know, you have your role, but then you, you're also, like, part of this larger team, and sometimes you have to you know, step out of your role and like help someone here or help someone there. And it's, it, I think that those lessons are just super valuable. So I hope it doesn't go away. I mean, yeah. You know, and, and Dave, I like that point about the team because I hadn't thought about it in that respect. But now I think about some of the teams that I've worked with and some of the people that have led those teams and I'm trying to go through it and I'm not going to name names, but they definitely had never played sports. And so like perhaps maybe even team sports, maybe they played like, you know, golf, tennis, which I love both of those sports, but that's they've never been in a team setting where they're losing or where they're needed or where they maybe weren't needed right like that's a pretty like interesting perspective and you know it's funny like our company most of the people that we hire have played some sort of sport and it just kind of so happens that way uh but i think perhaps something interesting yeah yeah i think i don't think that sports are the only like the only way and like you can be on other teams that are not not sports teams i think one of the um uh, something that I valued a lot, like going to college and being in a, you know, being with like mostly, a, um, I went to Notre Dame, like we were in dorms that were single sex. So I was in a dorm with like a bunch, bunch of guys and like, uh, just like having a leadership role sort of like in a group of friends. I think that can also teach you a bunch of lessons about like, like just fundamentally learning how to lead people. You're not always the leader, but like when, I think when you are in a leadership position, regardless if it's sports or something else, I think you learn a ton from from that, and if if you can lead people in one setting, usually that translates to other settings as right. well. What yeah. does that look like? I mean, in a group of friends, you know, like like if you're not in like a organized environment where it's like a work setting or like a sports setting, like how 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 was that experience? <laughs> I think it's like if you're. Um, I, I went to college in a like South Bend, Indiana. It's, it was a cold place like there's not a lot to do a lot i figure the first thing you're gonna say was that it was a cold place it's 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 (laughs) i mean if you're gonna talk about that place like one of the first few things you gotta say about it is pretty it's pretty cold pretty damn cold there's not that much to do um so it's a sort of place where you have to make your own fun um and i i came from california i was used to having a lot of fun and uh i was like all right we're really like we're gonna have to build a special culture here like amongst my buddies of like we're right um we're gonna have to start traditions we're gonna have to throw great parties we're gonna have to all like all the things that we did and uh um i like i actually learned a lot from from that of those four years of being being in a situation where like it wasn't always easy to you know as easy to go to a great party as it was where i grew up or this and you know and it's like we kind of made it happen we made it a great four years and yeah i I learned as much from that as I probably did from school. I learned some things in school too, but it's like those experiences learning how to interact with other humans and like coming together to build a culture that's a really special culture that like everybody it becomes, you know, one of the most important things in your life then and even carrying forward for, you know, a lot of the people it's still something that um is, you know, one of the more important things mm. in their life. Yeah. So speaking of college, I mean, what was the plan for for you? I mean, you go to college and and then, I mean, what did you study? Uh, I studied economics and history. Fun. It was, so I'm, I I am, uh, I'm a history junkie. The other, like sports and history are my two 
two passions in life. They're pretty 50-50. How did you figure out the history part, like in terms of your passion for it? Oh my gosh. From the time I was, probably dates a little bit to um, to my mom and my parents and travel and sort of just like having a little bit more of a worldly view of things. I also just love storytelling. Like I love great stories. Um, I love film and television and books and like just, I'm just like a voracious consumer of stories. But history, I think, is like the for me. Yeah, it's the single best. Um, you know, it's like an endless source of incredible stories that continue to blow my mind. So I'm pretty much always reading. Was it just general book. history, or was it like U.S. history or world history? I've gone through phases on yeah. everything. Like right now, I'm reading a book about. Uh, <laughs> I'm reading. I'm reading a book about our Indo-European ancestors that lived in the Pontic Steppe in like. 6,000 years ago and ended up um, <laughs> splitting into different groups and the, you know, the, the Greeks that fought in the Trojan war, they eventually, they came from there and the, you know, the Celts and the, anyway, I could go on and okay, on. I have a question actually. Yeah. Uh, how much in general, generally speaking, how much his, of history do you think directly impacts uh, the future? Like, like if you're a really good, like if you're a history junkie, you know a lot about history. Do you, do you feel like you're somebody that, you i don't want to say like you could read the future but like you can apply a lot of the things that you're learning and in, in, in seeing how the world is unfolding yes yeah. yeah. i think there's a ton of pattern recognition for sure yeah. like right now i'm doing a climate company and one of the reasons i got so passionate about doing it is not to jump too far ahead but uh um i did a lot of reading on societal collapses and sort of like what the circumstances were that you know where there were like pretty pretty strong cracks that emerged in um, in different civilizations, and then when something really bad would happen, and bad things always happen, there wasn't enough sort of buffer in the society to handle it, and like that's usually when collapse happens. So I get like I do to answer your question. Um, I wish one of my pain points in life is like I just wish more people would would be interested in things that happened in the past, so we don't have to make the same damn mistakes over and over again. So that is a little bit of my perspective on life yeah. yeah and i feel like the way that that happens is if content creators get creative enough and can put it in a digestible format and yes of course like there's not a substitute perhaps for reading a book or being there in that moment 100 but there are ways to package it that will at least get people interested and then you could do a deeper dive if this is something that actually like you know i don't know sparks some sort of interest in you and then you could go read a book, go interview somebody, go listen to the podcast. I mean, there's no shortage of content. You just have to like find it. But I do think that, you know, and I'm not a history junkie. I mean, obviously you've studied history and whatnot, but I feel like I don't spend enough time yeah. and invest time. When it comes it's, to it's, education, it's a lot of time. When it comes to like the intersection of that and like technology, I feel like AR and VR is probably gonna be a big like immersive content is gonna be a big like catalyst for getting you know getting that ball rolling in terms of like being like more taking engaged. you back to the aspects yeah, like, yeah, exactly like being there and experiencing it versus just reading it out of a book right yeah so I, I haven't put this out yet but i actually recorded a podcast last week with a friend of mine named daniela bellelli um he's a um he's a history professor who has a he has one of the biggest history podcasts in the world it's called history on fire and he he has a podcast series called the conquest of mexico which is like it is so good. It's some of the best storytelling of any medium I've ever like consumed in my life. It was so good that in the third episode, I literally had to, I was listening to it in the car. I had to pull my car over to the side of the road. So I like, I could not, 
like believe what was going on. I could not, I could not handle driving a car right. and listening to this at the same time. It was mind blowing stuff. And I, so to me, it it comes down to like you're hundred percent right. It's all about packaging. Like if somebody, if something's just audio, it's going to be limiting compared to totally. if it's like they made a three hundred million dollar movie out of it. But I think it all comes down to storytellers. Like if 100%. you have the right person, the right talented person telling the story, that's everything. So I like, uh, you know, I get into storytellers and I try to consume everything that yeah. those people do. Who are, who are some of your favorites like growing up or like what, what were your favorite stories? I'm not talking about like, uh, you know, out of a history book or anything, but content like movies or shows or things like that. Oh, man. Uh um, I mean, I was like a Star Wars junkie as a kid and stuff. I would uh, Dazed and Confused. I think was one of the more inf- influential movies in my life. I saw I yeah. saw that movie when I was twelve or something, and it's like, yep, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know check some of this stuff out. I I just like I love I love movies that uh, that sort of like transport you to a time and a place. Um, I don't know, man. I've I've ever like I've watched every movie and every. You know, every show, my wife and I are show junkies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm curious, like, since we're now on this history topic, how much of history do you think is embellished? Or how much of the stories of history do you think are embellished? Like, if you had to put, like, a percentage on it. um, Boy, that, that I think is tough. I think that... I think that there are there are great historians out there that try as best as possible to take the information that they have and to you know sort of split the middle on what probably happened. But it's all the reality is like unless unless you were there, like right. the what the depiction of what happened is probably it's probably different or pretty different than what actually happened. Totally. Um, My number was twelve percent. Your number is twelve percent. <laughs> so eighty eight percent accuracy. That's pretty damn good. We'll go with that. At USC, that's like an A plus plus in your business classes. Like just with that curve. Yeah, our, our curve in most classes was like sixty percent. Yeah, so, so yeah. that must have been nice. <laughs> so Notre Dame, you're doing well. You're doing great. Obviously, you're having a good time. You're warming up. Uh, what what comes next? Uh, all sort of the. Um, I mean, the Bleacher Report story started started there. Um, I I did some internships when I was in college, uh, like a lot of kids do, or who are relatively privileged. And I, I spent a summer doing sales. I spent a summer um, working for a venture capital firm in Palo Alto. I spent a summer working for an iBank in in New York. And I um, I took a job with with the iBank. And or I accept what I was offered a job, accepted it verbally. Um, and a little bit after doing that, I had sort of like an early midlife crisis. I, I'm, I'm sort of a contrarian by nature, not so much in terms of like, um, like I, I don't like conforming to like whatever the popular thing is. Um, I don't act out in terms of like dressing differently or like there are different ways that people sort of, um, handle that. But I, I tend to run in the opposite direction of like what everybody is doing just by nature. And I, is it, be, is it because that everyone's doing it? Like, is it because it, like, I think, yeah, I think some of it is, is that where I just like, I've, I want to like, I just have this like internal thing where I want to feel like an indiv- individual. Um, and I'm like, there, that's I'm a happy. crazy thought. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I, but, that's no, but I understand just, what you're saying. It's like yeah. this, this feeling of if everyone is on this side, it's almost like zigging when everyone's zagging type of thing, right? 
like there must be something yeah else it's like i have a hard like if a song is too popular and like everybody's doing it or there's some trend that everybody's doing i'm just like ah it's not cool everybody's everybody's doing it that's just sort of how how i'm wired and i uh i sort of felt that way about the career path i was maybe choosing to go down of like like i'm just gonna be like i worked I, i had some exposure to people who worked um you know doing hardcore finance and like a lot of them didn't have great personal lives or getting divorces like they're not spending much time with kids i was like that's not what i want my life to be like and also on top of that like if i'm if i go and work for a big financial firm or something like what a, like i'm just sort of a cog in the wheel like i want to do something more with my life and so i i freaked out i decided i wasn't going to do that job and how old are you at this time like 21 i was i was 21 yeah and uh i was that was probably like about the end of my first semester of my senior year of college, maybe the beginning of the second semester. And I was spent, I was so, it was so cold that winter. Um, I was spending so much time just consuming online sports content. I was like, was it like what ESPN at the time? I mean, what else was there? Yeah. ESPN was definitely sports the, illustrated. Was, yeah. ESPN's definitely the, the main staple. Yeah. Um, I mean, online newspapers, barely newspapers, barely at all. Was a real GM a thing back then? Mm, I don't even. I don't know. Not. It might have yeah. been or it might have been around, but wasn't probably wasn't on my radar. Yeah. Uh, but I I basically like had a couple observations about like that were stuck in my head about um, the online sports world. One was that I thought existing content was really out of touch with my generation. It just was like the way I was on a college campus, spending a lot of time with buddies, and just the the way we talked about sports in our lives was just not being reflected online where you had these like very wordy articles written by mostly dudes mm. in their 50s and 60s um it was just really it was designed for like the newspaper reader it was designed for the newspaper reader it was yeah. very game recappy the taught the things we cared about like a lot like the a lot of the sports sports culture that you sort of see today that's represented visually on instagram or like even lists and rankings um like content that was more like more fun to discuss like like sports topics i think are sports are almost like a universal language for a lot of guys who love sports it's like it's the way you connect with each other you Mm -hmm. oftentimes conversations will start with you know talking about michael jordan versus kobe bryant or that and there just wasn't enough stuff like that so that was one observation and the other was i was an economics major so i was like thinking about supply and demand all the time taking all these courses and i thought geez it really seems like there isn't a whole lot of data used to figure out um, how much, like what content to create. It seems like there's certain topics that maybe people don't care that much about anymore. Um, the Major League Baseball All-Star Game is like the classic example of like every every outlet in the country was still sending somebody to that game. It was a big deal in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, but by the time you were getting there, nobody, nobody cared anymore. Um, and yet there were all sorts of other sports topics like the NFL draft, um, like transactional events, certain teams that uh, um, that seem to be really undercovered. So, yeah, it was part like I just got really passionate about like I want to make something for my generation. But also I think there's um, there's sort of a legitimate economic argument about what you could do here. Were these thoughts that you were voicing also to those around you or is this was just like internal conversation? Most of that for, I would say for a, like my my second semester, my senior year of college, I probably talked to my girlfriend about it. But it was, seemed a little ridiculous to be like, you know, hey, I'm going to go start a sports website. I think even when I decided to do that, um, 
I think a lot of my friends, definitely my family were like, uh, okay. But in this period of like soul searching, right? Like you had this existential crisis, right? And you're like, I don't want to go down this high finance route. What was your approach to eventually leading up to, you know, figuring out what you wanted to do with Bleacher Report and starting that? Like, was it like, I'm going to sit down and I want to start a business and I need to come up with an idea. And like, you were kind of just like, pushing that or did it just somehow come to you that hey there needs to be like this platform for sports lovers definitely more the latter it was a total passion play um uh it was like it was more about it was more about i want to create something that matters and like let's like you know i grew up in silicon valley i was like let's let's do it as a business uh but i was definitely not thinking about it from the standpoint of like huh um I don't want to take this job. So like, I want to come up with a business idea because I want to start a business. It started with, I want to do something in sports. Yeah. And did you think that that was going to be your full-time job? Um, it wasn't my full-time job for, so I, I graduated, I sent a PowerPoint presentation out to my buddies that were really smart and sort of had their, um, their acts together. Uh, the combination of those two things, um, a couple within the first two months, um, a couple of my good friends from high school said, yeah, I'll do like, I'll do this with you. And we started, um, we started working on it, but I had, I worked, I ended up taking a finance job in Chicago to pay the bills, um, for over a year and a half. And we did Bleacher Report part-time. Yeah. for Was 20, it called Bleacher Report? Yeah. It was always called Bleacher Report. Yeah. And I think I saw that you had three co-founders, right? And you guys were all friends from high school. Yeah. We start the, the four of us started, um, going to school together in seventh grade and yeah we knew we were part of the same group of uh there were 12 of us in high school that were super close friends were there yeah were there other like were the, were you trying to find friends that could kind of fill certain roles early on or like how did you did the like, just said yes like i'm down and like work on this with you did you just say okay let's do it it, <laughs> it was probably a little bit between those two but definitely some of just like hey i want to do this who, who wants to do it with yeah. me and then two of two of my friends Brian and Dave just took it, took it more seriously. And that we like that, that was the group that really said, Hey, this, this can be a company. And, uh, and we, we started turning it into a company. And what were Brian and Dave doing at the time? Uh, Dave went to USC and he was a film major. He, it's great school. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no comment from Dave. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, and, he he had a show he was he had a show on the hd network at the time that was like he got a couple couple episodes aired so like dave was kind of doing real shit um and then brian brian had a job working in consulting at deloitte just doing and now now brian lives like a playboy life in in miami it's a like very very different life these days for for him and I'm, i'm married with two kids like our lives could not be any any more different but uh uh yeah we we all just like grind dave was in la brian was traveling all over the place i lived in chicago we got a website up started creating content were you guys all good writers or just like uh we're all we're all decent writers um we did a lot of early writing ourselves but we figured out pretty quickly that if we were like the model wasn't going to scale if we did the writing so or, or most of the writing and uh essentially like we had a meeting in the Bay area over like labor day of 2006. And we all basically put our hands in the middle and we're like, all right, we are all agreeing. We're quitting our jobs in March of 2007. We're going to do this full time. 
and so and we're we all committed to like we're gonna we're gonna put a certain amount of money. I think we each like put like thirty thousand dollars into a bank account, which you know I did. I, I think we knew that was coming. We had been saving up for it, and uh, what uh, needed to happen for you to make that decision? Like a year in, was it just were you seeing obviously a lot of traffic? Not or not really. You know, it was definitely more of just like a screw it. Like I want to do this. Yeah, thing. It we was, enjoy there, there was it. No, I mean, there must there, be like a market for it. Like we're just gonna. There, it all there was no really logical reason to do it other from a metric standpoint or anything other than just like we like we want to go we want to go try to do this like we want to go like we want to be entrepreneurs we want to um we'd rather be doing this versus dave getting Nari emmanuel coffee and you know me working till three in the morning in chicago and whatever the hell brian was doing yeah. um it was it was more of like like a lifestyle like we want to go we want to go try to do this i want to kind of talk about like the state of the internet at this time because i think that plays a big role in terms of like the timing of, of when you guys started this thing right like 2005 six i'm just trying to think you know myspace aim maybe like when it comes to social and then outside of that like what was what was the state of the internet and what like yeah like yeah. How, how did you get this website up and running a- aim had been huge for years at that point but that was yeah. like i would say that had been the primary um sort of like commute like on desktop right so it's yeah. not on it's not on yeah. phones right um, texting is not a thing yet uh at, at all there's no there, there no there are no mobile apps those don't come until 2010 2011 um myspace is a thing face facebook has started to take over um yeah. for myspace facebook colleges mostly 2004 was like the big year where yeah facebook yeah. and colleges to I, I don't know what year facebook went broad but it was probably around that, that oh time six frame. maybe yeah yeah I, w- I would say that too maybe maybe 06 um and youtube is around but you know you can't like the quality is not right. particularly good Nothing so there wasn't like as was much today. there was there wasn't as much opportunity to share content online basically like at that time i mean totally different like all the thing the world that we live in today was starting to be built out but like very much in its nascency i mean we're talking about facebook like newsfeed's not even around like right. facebook is go to a girl's profile and check out her pictures or vice versa. And then put it on your like top eight. <laughs> that was my space. Oh, that was my space. <laughs> that was my space. But yeah, yeah. we had bulletin it's boards okay. on MySpace. Gotcha. If you guys it's remember okay. that. But yeah. Um so 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 did you have to did you know how to code a website? Like did you have to how did you We did a- not know how to code a website. <laughs> we uh um we hire <laughs> uh we decided actually Dave, like Dave Dave Nemitz, one of my co-founders, I remember leading this decision, like really pushed to build the website using Ruby on Rails. Um, it was sort of without going going deep yeah. on the tech. It was sort of novel at the at the time. We ended up being one of the biggest Ruby on Rails sites on the on the planet, which was cool. We ended up finding an 18-year-old kid. Uh, his name's Quinn Slack. He now runs a company, I think, that's worth billions of dollars. <laughs> Years, who, who knows? Brilliant, brilliant kid. Like sixteen hundred on his SATs. Uh, had like deferred a year from going to Stanford and like wanted real life work experience. So yeah, we brought we brought Quinn in, and poor Quinn had to sit with us in an office for months. And yeah, he was our our first developer. And then we um, we basically got like. The basic version of a site off the ground and brought in another developer and then uh we're able to uh like our we were able to raise our first round which was like a million and a half dollar round which at the time was a series a and were you guys paying yourselves or not really no i think i think what i remember in the beginning is that 
we were going to pay ourselves like either four or 800 bucks a month just as like a living stipend. And I think after one month, we're like, eh, we can't afford to do that. So we, we rented a 300 square foot windowless air conditioningless office in Menlo Park, California. Um, I think the office was like $600 a month and we worked seven days a week until we raised that round. This episode is brought to you by More Than Profit. If you enjoy the Founder Hour, we think you'll enjoy this podcast too. It celebrates entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders that are living and working with purpose. The host, Bryce Butler, sits down with his guests and shares personal stories about what it's like to succeed and even fail. But more than that, what motivates them beyond just profit to press forward in their work and as a leader. Check out More Than Profit wherever you get your podcasts or at www.morethanprofit.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. And were you guys like watching sports and covering it yourselves or how, how are you guys getting the content? Mostly what we decided, mostly what we did was we recruited writers. Mm. Um, we recruit, there were at the time, the other thing that was going on on the internet at the time was blogging was really popular. Right. Yeah. That was the other dynamic. Blogspot. Yep. Tumblr. Yep. yep. WordPress. And Tumblr was a little later, but like, yeah, yeah we're, they're WordPress, Blogspot for sure. And there were a lot of uh, sports blogs that emerged Um and what was happening was that guys would do them, but they couldn't make any money, and they would um, they would burn out after a pretty like one or two years, and they they'd mostly be done. So we said, hey, we'll recruit these people. We'll recruit people who wrote for their college news- newspapers about sports, um, and we'll basically uh, we'll give them a platform where they'll have more support, where they won't have to find the audience themselves, and we'll we'll help them reach a larger audience than they ever could on their. Yeah. on their own and we sort of like gamified sports writing in the in the early years you would start as a you know as a junior analyst or something and then um the more uh the more readers you um you got uh, the more comments were on your articles the more this or that you sort of moved up in status i was a i was a big halo player in college if you guys remember that video game yep. and i basically ripped off their uh um their leveling and sort of like rewards system <laughs> Interesting. that was my that was my inspiration for yeah. the, for bleacher reports early product uh, worked great yeah no it's interesting um something i read that was really interesting was uh that you know speaking of like having data kind of dictate what you were doing was like i think you i saw that you would use like google insights to find like what people were searching for in terms of sports yeah what were what were people searching for like what did you see where you're like oh interesting like we should write about this or that um all right, let me think if I can say this correctly. It's been a long time. So what we figured out was that like, I, I, I was creating a lot of content and working with writers creating a lot of content. It became very clear that articles about the NFL outperformed articles about Major League Baseball pretty much 100% of the time. So you realize like, okay, not all sports topics are created equal. And some of the stuff would be obvious like Yankees content's probably going to do better than like Milwaukee Brewers content. No right. shit. Um, but you you started to be able to map that stuff out and say, uh, okay, we should be probably creating more content about the NFL draft because these articles do really well, um, yada, yada. But then like, there were sort of two, uh, two conjoining factors. One, um, you'd create content. You'd go look at, uh, at how that content performed in Google Analytics, and you, you would be able to see, okay, for this article about the NFL draft, here are the top two or three search terms 
that people look for that ended up um, that that um, ended up with them on our website. So maybe one was like NFL draft order or what, like whatever it would be. But then you could go plug that term back into Google Insights, and you'd say like, oh. Um, we published this article about NFL draft order on January 6th where there was, you know, X amount of interest. But if we'd actually published it on January 3rd where there was the most interest, then we would have gotten way more traffic. So we had this feedback loop where we were able to to create content to discover the terms that people were coming to us with and then to plug those terms back into Google Insights to say, like, how do the next time we do this, how do we... Um, how do we optimize so that we get as much audience as possible out of those terms? Mm-hmm. So you can't do anything like that anymore, but because right. of the privacy rules. Um, but that was a very, very effective strategy. We were able to map out for every sport, yeah. anything you can imagine. We were able to basically map out when there was the most interest about the particular topic. And speaking of roles on a team, what was your role at the time? And I mean, I'm sure it's changed multiple, multiple times, but what were you doing early on? I was in the early years. I was in charge of, I was in charge of all the content. um, uh, was in charge of the sort of product vision and strategy and audience growth. So my, the way we sort of divided things up, um, I was sort of on the consumer facing side of the business and then my two co-founders um one one of them uh ran business development and the the other one um worked sort of on like this getting the sales side of the business off the off the ground as friends how were you guys able to work out just working together and managing one another holding each other accountable we we stro- definitely struggled with that it's i think it's it's hard we all knew each other so well that um, when things went bad, it, you know, they're, they're sort of like, if you, if you have a professional relationship with someone first, there are always lines that do, usually for most rational people that sort of don't get crossed with our group of friends. Like there were no lines in place. Like we knew each other too well. Um, uh, definitely had incidents where like the story of, I've told before um, without naming who exactly did what I wasn't there for it, but there was a day where Two of the two of my co-founders got into an argument in the office. Thankfully, the company was really small and nobody else saw it. But one of them slugged the other one in the face because, you know, it's like we were friends, and sometimes that happened. The next day, that the guy who got slugged in the face called a meeting with the two of us who were not there, who um, you know were not participants in it. And uh, one of the guys that he he basically said, "Hey, you know, such and such slugged me in the face. Like, you guys have got to fire him. Like, this is like," and. Uh, my other co-founder said, oh, like, you're making too big of a deal about this. Just, like, get over yourself. So then he slugged him in the face. So, like, <laughs> it was like we we had... That's one way to get boxing content, I we, guess. Yeah, <laughs> we we definitely, like, um, I, I think uh, didn't... Thankfully, employees were not exposed to it very much, and it turned into a pretty professional organization over time. But we were... It was definitely, you know, Wild West craziness and some some stuff happened for sure. Yeah. Did, did you feel like at the time that, you know, you, you, you know, you talked about how sports were obviously a big part of your life. You played them, you watched them, you loved it. Did you feel like that passion was still there while you were building this company or was it more like business and that's all you had time for? Uh, I never lost my passion for sports. So I still, I still have it. Um, I think I'll have it until I die. Um, I did, 
the thing that was unexpected is I got really into uh, sort of the digital media game and that <clears throat> like I kind of got obsessed with it. And that that was something I could never have predicted where I was, you know, in college being like, I want to start a sports website. Um, like I, I ended up, uh, um, you know, sort of like inventing a number of audience growth techniques that ended up, you know, being sort of widely used in the industry. And I I loved growth. Like just I lo- like the there's nothing we, we we would send out an email in the company every time we hit a new um, number of a uh, million uniques a month. So it was like you start at like we've hit a million uniques. Yeah. And I would send out like, you know, some sports figure who was like wore the number number one. So it's like this was Kenny Lofton Day or whoever, whoever wore number one. And we get, we ended up getting all the way up to 81 million. So it's like but that that wow. really that really drove just on web like when we were big on social the numbers got way bigger than that um yeah. but and, and i feel like you guys like really were on the cusp of like a lot of these like newer kind of trends or i don't want to call them trends but it was like distribution channels like i think i saw that you so you guys didn't like operate like every other sort of media website at that time where you guys had like a lot of newsletters so you had that like a different type of relationship with your end customer and then when like social media came around right and like i think from what i remember like you guys were definitely like there early um and 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 how did you i guess how did you see what was coming at the time and stay relevant with the younger audience that you were originally trying to you know cater to we we built like the key to bleach report success was we were really good at building on top of of sort of other other successes so we built a big web audience mostly off the back of Google to begin with. And we leveraged that to create a, like we had a huge newsletter program before anybody else. We were, we were too early in the newsletter game. We had like three or 4 million newsletter subs by 2010 or 2011. Just a monopoly on inboxes. We, (laughs) yeah, we did really well with, with newsletters. Um, but then mobile apps came along and we're like, this is basically just a better version of a newsletter. We can allow people, instead of having to subscribe to four or five different team newsletters, they can just subscribe, like personalize um, their app, and that which was a really novel concept at the time. And we're like, and shit, we can send people push notifications. And the push notifications were super, super key um, because we got really good. You talked about a younger audience. Um, we had this core philosophy that we wanted our voice to be very peer to peer. Um, we wanted we wanted to ta- like target a twenty to twenty five year old male consumer and talk to that person like we were their friend or like they were we were their cool friend. So instead of hiring just exclusively sort of like journalism majors from you know USC or whatever you know lame yeah. school or like we no I'm just kidding um, we uh, UCLA yeah that's fine yeah yeah we. <laughs> Uh, we really focused on hiring um, kids that had cool voices and who were sort of like participants in the culture we were trying to represent. And um, they were really, really talented at uh, packaging sports news in a way where you'd want to share it with your friends and start a conversation. So we had all these reps doing that in a mobile app. And then when Facebook and then Twitter and then later Instagram said like, all right, we're really going to start pushing third-party content because that's how we increase our time on site. We were just so much better positioned to know how to program content than our competitors were, I think because of all our experience sending yeah. push notifications. I'm curious, what was the revenue model originally and how did it change over time? Like in terms of, yeah. It was, it was I mean, Bleacher Report was always mostly different forms of advertising. The types of advertising evolved over time. In the beginning, it was, 
you know, mostly display ads on a, on a website. Um, by the time I left, uh, I think the year I left Bleacher Report did about $75 million in revenue just off Instagram. Um, so it was like, we ended up, you know, selling massive sponsorships, massive branded content campaigns, a lot less of it with like the, the website ads were usually like tied to just, it was sort of like media that was attached to just, um, uh, increased scale for the campaigns. Um, commerce grew quite a bit in like the later years, but that was sort of the tail. I left in 2019. I think commerce was like a 20, like 2016 and on sort of thing. But it was when I left, it was almost a $200 million a year, mostly ad business. Hmm. We like if we ads aren't, it's a tough business. Um, but if you are, if you become sort of a must buy, if you're influential enough, um, we're, we were a must buy in the men's 18 to 34 category. I bought House of Highlights really early in its mm-hmm. in its development, where it had a couple hundred thousand followers. So that that made us a must buy as well. So you guys bought them? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, bought a bought it when I think we started talking to Omar when it had two or three hundred thousand followers, and we bought it at I don't know. What did you, What did you see 000. that they just had a good pulse on? Like, was it basketball content mostly, or? Um, it was at the t- at the time he was he was posting highlights of of a lot of different sports. Mm. Uh, a guy um, who now runs House of Highlights named Doug Bernstein found it and started talking to Omar. Doug was an early analytics guy at Bleacher Report, and he showed it to me. And he's like, "This kid has a special voice. Like just the way like it's just different. The way he's connecting with fans, <clears throat> it's just the best voice I've like I've ever seen." And uh, like Snoop was. Um, was following him and would sometimes comment and there was just this the special thing about house of highlights was that just like thousands of different celebrities were participating in its community and so we saw the early signs of that happening we're just like this is different um Hmm. and uh um it you know it was it worked out at what point in bleach reports bleach reports um like journey did you personally start realizing wow like this could be like pretty lucrative like i'm glad i pursued this path of entrepreneurship versus you know taking it on another job in finance or whatever other business yeah i've been in so we had um the best way to answer that question is to say like it became a real company in 2007 we did pretty well in 2007 and 2008 and then 2009 was a disaster um our investors uh, kind of sort of forced um, a CEO on us when we, we had to raise money um, during the 2008 recession. Um, we had four term sheets that were coming from different VCs. Um, three of them got pulled and uh, one of them lowered their valuations. So we basically like we re-upped with our Series A, which would really now be seed investors. And like the condition was that we had to bring in this CEO guy and just like was not a was not a good fit at all. Um, like at, at all. And what came out of it was that the the three of us, Dave, Brian, and I ended up really for the first time sort of like realizing that we had to trust each other. And we, um, we ended up getting rid of the CEO, but we also divvied up responsibilities in a way where we just qu- hadn't quite, we were, we were all in each other's shit a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, okay, I'm responsible for this. You're responsible for that. You're responsible for that. And, uh, and that was when we, like, we went from an audience of 3 million people and we'd be like, we were stuck at three for a long time, Mm -hmm. for like a year. We went from three to 10 in, um, 
from like October 2009 to June of 2010. Just because of that focus and, you know. We just, we focused, we figured things out, uh, we empowered people, and um, and we just put all of our energy into growth versus our energy into fighting against the CEO or fighting with each other. And it, once, when that happened, our, our newsletter subscribers started growing really quickly. I, it was in that phase, our, our newsletters were so well received by the, like the audience we were reaching. I knew, I knew at that point that, that we probably had something, but I went, I went from like in 2009, I bought GMAT books. I was like, this isn't going to work. I'm studying, I'm studying to go to business school. Really? Like I was, I was definitely, um, in fact, like Brian and I made the decision that we were going to get rid of the CEO because I came to him and I was like, dude, this is, this is awful. This is not going to work. This guy, this guy sucks. He has our investors backs. And Brian and I sat down in an alley in San Francisco and he basically said, like, screw that. Like, we've worked on this for three or four years. Um, like, let's like let's go to them. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's start trusting each other. And anyway, that was a that was a very significant moment in the history of the company. So I'd say it went from I think this is screwed to I think this is gonna work, like with within probably like six months. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So you guys end up selling the company. How did that decision come about? We, uh, I think we were all pretty tired. Like we've been at doing it. It doesn't sound like that long, but at the time yeah. it was like seven and a half years. None this of is us, 2012 now, we right? sold in 2012. None of us had any money. Um, we felt like without, like in the sports world, rights are a big deal. Meaning like rights, meaning the rights to, uh, sports highlights, the rights to intellectual property. Yeah. I was going to ask like how, how like early on, like how are you getting these licensing? Not like, was it licensing at that point? We we didn't have anything before we were acquired. Yeah. Nothing. nothing. So it was, um, we felt like without rights, the most the business would ever be worth was like what HuffPost sold for, which is about 300 million. Yeah. So we're like, okay, that's, we think that's the cap for right or wrong. Um, and we got, we got an offer for 215 from Turner and time Warner. And we said, you know what? Like we could be greedy here and try close to push enough. this, yeah. but like <laughs> close enough. It was like uh, capital gains tax was going up and right. we're like, well, it was like close that deal. So that was right. the financial part of it. Tax the, brackets and shit. All the tax brackets. You got I'll pay it. taxes. It's okay. But the, the other, the other part of it, um, uh, the, the other part of it was that the other, like, like we talked to ESPN a couple times and talked to other, people in the space they kind of wanted to make bleacher report like the jv to their varsity like to espn.com the varsity and turner wanted to make bleacher report big and i i wasn't sure if they were actually you know sort of blowing smoke up our ass if or if they were actually going to follow through but they said all the right things they're like we're going to invest in you and we're going to do this together and i really like the other people on the side of the table so that that was also yeah. like i really felt confident that the best home for Bleacher Report was with Turner, which I think definitely ended up being the case. And the idea would be they acquire you, wholly, fully acquire you, and you guys uh, together as a team would still run the business. Yeah, I stayed. Um, the other two founders blew out at that point. Um, the business had sort of evolved and we brought a lot of other people in. But we, I think Turner initially planned that they would integrate us more, but we we ended up like we were just crushing it. So they ended up like, ah, we'll leave them alone for a year. And it's like, ah, we'll leave them alone for another year. 
they ended up they didn't they didn't really integrate Bleacher Report into the rest of the Turner business until after I left. Mm. Um, we ran as a pretty autonomous. We we were able to leverage things that um, we became the official sports partner of CNN, and we would do appearances on Inside the NBA and stuff. But uh, yeah, we were able to run our own business. It was a pretty great experience. Were you able to still keep that voice that really made Bleacher Report unique? Because I mean like at the end of the day like you're covering sports but it's it's the storytelling aspect that made it or makes it what it is right like or was that kind of forced to change as turner kind of came into the picture no i don't i think they were very um my partner on the other side was a guy named matt hong who had just like he deserves a ton of credit for whenever your company gets acquired you've got to have somebody on the other side who has your back and has a shared vision with you. And Matt just had my back throughout. Uh, and he, whenever there were sticky things that came up where somebody who was really senior disagreed or wanted to do something else with us, like he just always had my back. Um, so we worked through that stuff together and no, they know I, there was, there was one time, one time where we had a, I had a journalist write an article about um, how NBA players use burner phones. Um, like it was like yeah. the culture of how NBA players players like cheated, Kevin cheated on their significant <laughs> others. Yeah. yeah, and it was a, it was it was an awesome piece. Like it was one of the best pieces we've ever done. Um, but it was I, there was a partnership with the NBA in place, and so I sent it to you know my boss's boss and said, "Hey, uh, you know this is coming down the pipe." And it was the one time they. It was the one time they said that he said you can't publish this where I I decided to not publish it. There were a couple other times where I was told to not publish stuff and I did it anyway and took the consequences. Um but maybe that maybe yeah. only happened 3 times. Yeah. I saw you left and came back once. What happened there? Oh, I left so I had a um my contract when we were acquired uh and sort of like my my bonus stuff ran through 2014. So I stayed then. Um, then our CTO and I bounced out and started another company. Stayed on great. I um, I transitioned while I was doing that other company into sort of like an exec chairman of Bleacher Report role. And uh, what happened was that they decided, um, Turner did, that Bleacher Report had a pretty big growth opportunity. And so they uh, um, they bought that company that we worked on for a year to, brought, to bring me back. And they put $100 million into Bleacher Report. So I, I came back to oversee a big expansion plan. What I when I left, I told them, "Hey, I love this. It's been a great experience. Um, but to keep doing this, like I, I want to be able to play bigger because, um, like, we just can't do that much from here yeah. unless you really invest in the business. But if you ever decide to invest in the business, I was like, like strategic. We, can, all, we yeah. can always talk about this. So yeah, right. I came back. Um, I was there for another three and a half years. We more than doubled revenue. Uh, the brand and the audience grew um, exponentially. It was, uh, um, it was, it was cool. It worked. And then, uh, ultimately you said 2019 was when you fully stepped down. Yeah, I stayed, I stayed through, um, I helped them get through their, uh, their integration with AT&T because AT&T acquired Time Warner. That's right. And, uh, I kind of knew at that point that, um, things weren't going to be the, the same. And I was, I felt like I got my job done there and I had some other interests that I wanted to pursue like I was starting to get really into climate and I wanted to spend more time looking at that space and wanted I like knew I needed sort of a new purpose mm -hmm. um so it was just the right time 
did you feel as though after or when you had made that decision in 2019 that you were financially secure enough to kind of go out and pursue something else or was it again to build a successful company where there could be a financial you know or a massive financial upside similar to bleacher report uh i would say i have never done anything I don't, like i've been really lucky and have made plenty of money um i have i haven't been it's not like i'm not motivated by money but i definitely have been more of a passion first person so yeah i mean was lucky enough to be financially secure and i i wanted to go spend some time thinking about problems that weren't sports problems i just did i did that for a long a long time and yeah um it was great but i wanted yeah, to you just want to watch and enjoy sports maybe playing with your kids and that's about it uh i you know it's funny i like i enjoyed sports throughout i just like when you're when it's your job to grow a sports audience every single month over and over and over again and the other thing that i got a little tired of is uh the business became side became pretty big and you know it's like 200 million dollars of revenue it's a lot of a lot of ad sales deals and i did have some existential like i didn't get into this to sell you know so that like you know, X could sell more insurance or that X could sell more cars or like, I don't really care. And sometimes we, you know, there were advertising, we would be advertising for things I didn't believe in and didn't like, so, um, I kind of had enough of that side of it. And like, even I'll give you an example now of like, I'm not morally opposed to like to sports betting. Um, I had like, I, in any, any way it's fine. Um, but I did not want to spend my life, uh, basically like, pushing sports betting on young right. kids like it was yeah. like it was like cool i've made a bunch of money doing sports and now i'm gonna try to convince a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds to bet on sports like eh, that's not what i that's not what i wanted to do right i don't go, go do it if you want to it's just not how i wanted to spend my sure. time so like what was the process like about thinking about the next problem that you want to solve uh part of like it's just like exposing myself to different things reading um talking to people I invested in 25 companies, something like that. Uh, um, you guys are, uh, sorry, you guys are sponsored by um, uh, Outer. By Outer. You, I'm, you I'm want, an investor do, in Outer. Do you want to do our next like intro? <laughs> yeah, no, Outer's a great, I've owned an Outer uh, um, outdoor couch for years. It's a great, it's a great This product. is what one would call a native advertisement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. was not planned. <laughs> but Jake was a former uh CEO is a, was a former guest of ours. I saw, I saw that. Yeah. I saw yeah. that. Great um, but anyway, it's a great it's a great product and 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 on and on. So I I checked a bunch of stuff out um, through sort of a combination of history, like reading about history, learning more about climate, living in the Bay Area where smoke and wildfire season started. Um, I started consuming a bunch of climate content. Just so I was really curious about. I wanted to learn about the problem side levers of climate. Like what is really, what are the really the biggest issues um, by sector and um, overall? And then what are the the solution sides? And I learned a couple things. One, I thought the whole world was, climate world was like way more fascinating than I thought it, thought it was going to be. Um, there's yeah. so much interesting stuff, mind-blowing things that are being built that could potentially make our future way more awesome. I just got really into it, but then I couldn't help but looking at the space with a Bleacher Report lens on. You mentioned earlier, content packaging is everything. Right. And I realized there's absolutely no way that, like, as I what I wanted doing with the cooldown, which now we launched last July, we already have over five million users a month. Um, but there was no way that you were going to achieve any sort of scale like that, or where I want to be able to take this business with 
20, 30, 40, 50 million users a month um, without packaging that information in ways that were really useful to specific segments of the audience. So it's like, yeah. you know, I, I use data to build a big sports audience. And now I don't think anybody's really used data well around climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm doing the same thing where we're really using data to understand how to help people transition to um, ultimately, you know, polluting less and also, you know, making healthier decisions for their families. Yeah. It seems like the, yeah, a big piece of that is just like being in the know, right. And like being educated on what's like the impact and things like that. But how do you, I mean, do you think that media or I guess like, yeah, media is plays like the, is going to be playing like one of the biggest roles in trying to shift human behavior, like ultimately to, because I think I read like, you know, um, recycle bins, like don't really do much to, for, for us or like, you know, the things that like we've tried to do over the years to, to try yeah. to make, yeah. I mean, recycle, like recycling, yeah. <laughs> it turns out was a concept invented by fossil fuel companies. This right. sounds like conspiracy theory stuff. Yeah. I'm not a super, I'm not a far left wing person or anything, but it turns out that's true. And yes, yeah. 95% of plastic that's put in recycling bins does not get recycled. It's super messed up. It's just going to end up in like a landfill. No, that's correct. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Uh, so traditional media in the sense of like you create an article um, and somebody reads it and do they do they magically start living their lives differently? No, I don't think so. Um, but I think that you can get people on a customer journey and with um, there are ways there are ways to get people on a customer journey. I think with climate um, is a fairly distinct space where like if you're a generalist news company, people are reading an article and they're leaving. You're a celebrity entertainment site. They're reading about their favorite, this gossip, then they're out. What we can do is we can move people down a funnel where we can figure out what what like if they're interested in wanting to use less plastic or plastic disturbs them, they sort of go down a thread. If they're interested in environmental justice, they go down a thread. They're a conservationalist, they go down a thread. You you can get you can move people into newsletters just the same way we did at Bleacher Report. And then the really cool thing about climate is that products and services are just sort of inherently tied to the content. Um, you start to make different decisions as a consumer once you have this information. So we can educate people and then we can sort of complete the journey at the bottom of the funnel where they're actually using us to start to take different action. And that's why I think this can be a really innovative company because it can actually, um, it can actually sort of full circle help somebody from the start of their journey where they're, uh, using you know plastic laundry detergent and uh um, having a ton of waste that ends up in a landfill to you know coming around and uh um and buying different products that uh that are sustainable and that are, are zero waste or close to zero waste and that can be about little things it can be about bigger things like um like there are going to be millions and millions and millions of households that will need to electrify their homes People need a lot of help with that. Um, yeah. 35% of emissions in the United States come from households. Mm. Uh, there's no way to solve that unless individual people make some different decisions. So we want to help people with that. So I'm curious about that. And I know it's a topic that Pat and I talk about, you know, not at length, but we've talked about several times, is like power, right? Like and, and how you actually can get to a place where you are using electric vehicles or using nuclear you know, uh, well, yeah, that's a whole different level, but like, you know, I mean, we don't have, like in the state of California, at least, like I know for a fact, like we can't, we don't have enough power to power, like what we have currently, nonetheless, like anything else, like how, how do you, 
like what are your thoughts on that and i mean how does the government really play a role in that because that's what is needed to actually power literally and figuratively everything that you know an environmentalist and everybody else who's uh, an advocate of this space is, is looking to do yeah i mean Right now in the United States, 90% of new power that's coming online is renewable power, um, meaning mostly solar and, and wind. Uh, there are ways that people can switch to renewables like without having solar panels on their house. A lot of people don't don't know that, um, but you can like, uh, there's a company called Arcadia, um, Arcadia uh, Climate, that um, will help you figure out how to like get into a community solar program. So you can work with your utility company or somebody who partners with your utility company and turn off um, gas and oil in your for, as your power source um, and switch to most likely solar. And there there are things out there that people can do that actually make material impacts. Like that is a really big change that somebody can make. Yeah. So um, the answer is there there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, um, there are a lot of um, are a lot of projects going on all around the country. But the United States, if you look at um, where our uh, sources of power come from, um, it's a lot of dirty energy compared yeah. to other countries, like compared to Canada even, which is much, much cleaner. I mean, the United, the United States, it's it's a lot of uh, natural gas, which is not natural in any way. That's just, you know, clever branding. It's mm -hmm. it's methane. Methane is a, as a warming agent is 80 times more powerful than carbon. Mm -hmm. Methane ain't good. Um, <laughs> So it's a lot of natural gas. It's it's coal is starting to shrink, but it's still a lot of coal. Um, it's it's a fair amount of oil. Uh, um, so that's just one yeah. subset of, yeah. the, of the problem. But it will become easier and easier for consumers to use energy that is clean and not like I watched. I happened to hear Al Gore speak earlier today at a conference, and he referred to. Uh, um, you referred to basically like oil and gas companies have just have essentially just used our our air and our atmosphere as just a sewage field, and like you start to think about that, and then like you know carbon is invisible, so people people don't see it, but that that is what's been going on. Like we've just been using our air as like yeah. sewage. So um, when it comes to your approach, how like what's changed? launching a media company today versus when you first launched Bleacher Report? Like how, what different kind of approaches have you taken or, or have you not, or is it kind of similar, similar? You know, I, I asked myself that question a lot when we were starting the company, but like, it's been a lot of just getting back to fundamentals, which has been kind of fun. Like a lot of it's just rooted in data. It's like fit, like figure out one of the big problems in the climate space is that it's a lot of ideological, left-wing people who've just you know sort of like tried to tell you know people what to think and like americans are pretty individualistic it's hard to tell them like hey you need to do this like we're all yeah. we're all like they just don't respond to it well versus a lot of what we've done is we've we've tested um we've tested different messaging for like hey we're gonna we're gonna help you um we're gonna help you save money we're gonna help you make better health decisions for your families um, like an, an example of something that's really resonated is uh, it's a little disturbing to some people, but um, you know, running a gas stove in your house is not super good for health. Like it's pretty much illegal in Australia. It's the equivalent of somebody sitting in the corner of a room smoking cigarettes in your house. Uh, um, a lot of studies have come out that have confirmed that 
Um, if you run a gas stove and your kid is 12% more likely to develop asthma, like it's, it's, it's not, it's not great. Um, but what also happens is a gas stove, um, it's methane and it's really bad for the planet. Most people aren't going to switch their gas stove out because it's bad for the planet, but a lot of people are starting to get induction stoves or electric cooktops because they're like, you know what? I don't want to increase the chances of my kid getting asthma or just like, I don't want, like you have air quality monitors in your house right now. And if you have one of those monitors and you see what happens when your gas stove is on, like it, it goes, it goes high. And so it's like there, and that's, things don't always have to be that dramatic. Um, But oftentimes the way to actually convince people to do things, like the messaging is not so much about like, Hey, like be a good citizen of the earth. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, spend a bunch of your hard earned money, you know, even though maybe other people aren't to, you know, help save the planet in the United States. That's not super effective. Um, What's more effective is saying, here's why this is good for you. Yeah. But if you do that, here's how it impacts like you directly. But if you do that, you can get the exact same thing done. So a lot of it's what we're doing is just tied to data, figuring stuff like that out. Hmm. Well, this was a super fascinating conversation. Uh, I think that we could probably sit here and talk for hours about all the things that you are doing, all the things that are to come. Uh, But I think we'll save that uh, for maybe another time. Um, But thank you, Dave, for being on the show, for sharing your story and, you know, showing us that, um, you know, just a different perspective the kind of rooted in sports rooted in history and kind of the basics and just you know keeping at it staying focused building and doing it over and over again and i know i'm oversimplifying it but sometimes that's kind of all it takes is to just put your head you know on you know focus on something do it for a long enough time do it well continue growing and then you know move on yeah well it's fun to talk to you guys thanks for having me on Thanks, Dave. Thank you.